0: As you turn there, go ahead and stand, and uh, we stand just to honor God's Word, remind ourselves we're under its authority. Matthew chapter 13, Uh, this is on page 818 if you have one of the black hardcover Bibles. Matthew chapter 13. We're going to study through verses twenty-one through 23, but we're just going to read today, uh, right now, uh, through verse 9. Matthew chapter 13. Verses 1 through 9. As we read, remember, we're reading God's Word. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. You may be seated. Well, we're beginning this, uh, this series today, Pictures of the Kingdom. It's going to be four weeks uh, as we look through Matthew 13 and a number of parables, a number of stories that Jesus tells. Um, and then uh, we've got some stuff we're going to get back into in Romans, but let me just kind of give you an update about sort of where we've been and where we're going Uh, particularly as it relates to these series. So just before Easter, we finished our root series. And many of you were here for that. We took four weeks to look at the idea of laying down roots as a church, that we wanted to be people who are investing our lives and our resources, our time, talent, energy, money, um, into uh, digging roots, planting roots that would allow us to, to pass our faith on for generations to come. One of the tangible expressions of that is we gave you an opportunity to give over and above your regular giving toward the purchase of the 10 and a half acres that are directly west of this building, just right here, uh, that land. And, and, and many of you participated in that. And so I want to give you just an update about that and kind of let you know where we stand on that project. And, uh, and a lot of you have been part of that and have been curious, and so... Drum roll, right? Here we go. Uh, here's here's kind of where we stand. We have had 177 people uh, make a commitment, or, or not 177 people, 177 commitments. Uh, many of those obviously represent a household or a, a couple. Uh, some of those represent a, si- a single person or children. Um, but 177 commitments have been made to Roots. The total dollar amount that has been pledged or committed to Roots is this. Uh, just over $748,000 has been pledged, has been committed to Roots. Yeah, you can clap for that. Um, so that's what's been committed. People said this is how much we intend to give over the next 20 months. The amount of money that's actually been given so far, this is really encouraging, is over $128,000 has been given. That's 12% of our total goal. Yeah. Our, uh, our total goal, as you may remember, is $1.05 million was our total goal. We had also given some folks an opportunity to go through at Financial Peace University to say, hey, before you make a commitment, you might want to get your financial life in order. And we've had an incredible response for that. Thirty people have signed up to participate in FPU, which is a record for us. Um, yeah, so you can clap for them too. And. Uh, and hopefully uh, that will be a, a great experience for them. So where that leaves us, if you take uh, $1.05 million and you subtract the total amount that's been committed, is we have a need of just over $300,000 uh, remaining toward that goal. And so uh, that's an update. That's where we stand. Um, now, I've had a week or so to process all this and to think through stuff. You've had now about 30 seconds. Okay, so uh, let, me, let me kind of help, help you process this a little bit. Some of you, you see a number like, you know, 750000 And you go, holy smokers, that is just a lot of money. I can't believe that much money came in. Wow, that's amazing. And if that's what you thought... You're right. That is a lot of money, a lot of money committed, especially when I think about that the series was four weeks. We had prepared for it for about six weeks just because of how fast everything came together. To think that $750,000 was committed in essentially a 10-week project is remarkable. Um, It's also remarkable when I think about kind of that number of commitments. That number of commitments, just to kind of, if you do the math on it, um, that number of commitments represents about half of our adult a regular attendance of our church. So about half of the adult attendance of our church has committed over 70% of the goal. So that means each commitment represents a really significant commitment. And so uh, that, that is, is incredibly encouraging. Now you might also hear that, and you might react the way my seven-year-old daughter reacted, which was, Daddy, but the goal was 1.05 million. And that's not that's not 1.05 million, that's less. <laughs> Honey, first of all, congratulations on your math. It's coming along really well. You're absolutely right, that's not that amount. Um, but, but how do you process that? Well, he, here's, here's the thing. That is a significant amount of money, both pledged and given to get the ball rolling. And while I wish it was higher, of course I do. I wish that we had you know, exceeded the goal, that would that'd be terrific. But, but this is enough that we really feel like the momentum is going, it's going strong, and we feel like we're on pace to continue the project. We're not in any way uh, thinking about pulling the plug on that or changing anything. I feel like uh, between, between the people who will make commitments either after they finish FPU or just after life situations get resolved, people that will give that didn't maybe intend to later, as well as potentially budget surpluses we'll have over the next couple of years, I think we have an opportunity to, to get there. Uh, we may get it in 20 months, it may take longer than we had hoped, but, but I feel really confident that we're going to be able to, to move forward on that. So I'm encouraged, particularly by the level of sacrifice and the level of generosity expressed by the people who made a commitment. Now there's something I said during the Roots series that I wish I could take back. Some of you may already know what it is. It was the second week during the message on generosity. There was a phrase I said, and as soon as I said it, I knew I didn't mean it. And, I, and it, I really was trying to say something else, but the, what I said during that second week that I wish I could take back was, I don't care whether you give to this or not. That's not true. What I meant in the context of what I was saying is I was saying, listen, God has always provided for our needs. He's always taken care of us. I think he's led us to this point. I think he's in this project. And I'm not worried about that it's all contingent on any one person's gift. That's what I meant to say, is I'm not worried. I didn't mean to say I don't care, because even as this has all gone, gone down, I realize I care a lot. Like, I really do care. I mean, I care about it for the sake of our church. I also care about it for you. I really want the people who call this church home to be invested in this project, because it represents your heart, right? If Jesus says that our our hearts follow our treasure, and investment in this represents that your heart's engaged in the mission. And so I'm so encouraged that, that there are a significant number of people whose hearts are seriously engaged. The thing that I just am, am, am wondering, and, I, and I, I, don't, I can't rush to judgment, I don't know everybody's situation, I don't know everything, but the thing I, I just, I hope isn't the case, is that half of our church's hearts are not engaged in the mission of the church. Hope that's not true. Now, here's what I know. I know as the church grows that the number of the percentage of people who serve tends to go down. I know the percentage of people who get involved in a redemption community or small group that tends to go down. I know that typically as a church grows, there are more and more people who want to consume ministry but not give to it or serve toward it. And so I hope that those of you who who maybe haven't gotten in the, I- involved in this project? Yeah, I-, I hope I hope you're not done in thinking about it. I hope you'll still consider it. Now I'm not going to keep getting up here, and I'm not going to badger you about it. But for your sake, and for our sake, and as much as anything for your heart, I hope you'll consider still being part of this project. But God's at work, and we're moving forward. Here's kind of the next uh, step as it relates to Roots. Is we'll probably close on this land in September. Um, so the way it worked out with the seller is we have it under contract. He didn't want to close till September, which is fine. Um, and that, that's great for us. And so we will uh, buy that land with cash uh, in September. We'll use the money that has been given to Roots so far. Uh, whatever balance is remaining will come from redemption as a whole, from uh, the cash reserves of redemption. And then as we finish our commitment to, to meet this goal of 1.05 million, all the other money after closing will go towards replenishing those cash reserves uh, that we've borrowed, in a sense, from redemption uh, wide And so that will allow other congregations to keep pursuing what we're doing and allow us to move forward on the project. So thank you for those of you who gave. Thank you for those of you whose hearts are in this mission. It means the world to me. And I really I really thank you. So that's where we've been, looking at roots. Uh, where we're going next after this series, uh, some of you have asked, what, what happened to Romans? Where did Romans go? We were in there for so long, and then roots happened, and now this parables thing. What is this? And where's Romans? Well, Romans is going to start uh, June 1st. Uh, we're going to get back into Romans, we'll get back into Romans 9, and uh, we will just really go, go straight from Romans there to the end, through the end of the year. We'll finish the book of Romans, you won't miss anything, um, and we'll pick that up after this particular series, all right? So that's where we're going, kind of a family update, um, but uh, let's pray and then we'll, we'll dive into this passage. Father in heaven, thank you that you have and that you are and that you promise to be with us. Thank you that you've met our needs. Thank you that you have allowed uh, so many to own this ministry and be invested, not just with money, but with their service and with their hearts. And so, God, thank you for that. God, I pray now as we turn our attention to your word that you would give us ears to hear. As Jesus said, he who has ears, let him hear. God, help us to hear. Help us to hear Jesus' heart. Send your spirit now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, well, we are, uh, as I said, going to look at four uh, parables from the book of Matthew chapter 13. If you want to kind of cheat ahead and look ahead, go ahead and this week be be reading Matthew 13, and you can check that out. And it's interesting because Matthew 13 is filled with Jesus talking in parables. Parables are stories. Uh, These are pictures. These are word pictures. These are illustrations saying the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is like... And then he tells a story. Now, it's really interesting because before this, uh, in Matthew especially, he's told a few parables here and there, but parables become a major way that Jesus teaches from this point on. And the question is, why? What's happened? Well, in order to understand that, it, before we just sort of dive in and start you know, pulling things out, we need to understand the, the context that we're looking at here. And so if you have your Bible open, uh, turn it back to the left, uh, to, the, to, to chapter 11 in Matthew, uh, starting in verse 29. What we're going to see there is that the offer of the gospel that Jesus brings is generous and gracious and big-hearted. This is a, this is a broad, sweeping, invitation to be part of what Jesus is doing and Jesus has up to this point he's been healing people he's been feeding people he's been casting out demons he's been teaching he's made things very clear about uh, how you can know uh, God and follow him he's been very clear about those things and here's what he says in chapter 11 verse 28 and 29 he says this come to me come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says you've been striving. You've been striving after a kind of rest for your soul. You've looked for it in relationships. You've looked for it in material things. You've looked for it all over the place, and you haven't found it. Come to me. I'll give you that rest. And who is this invitation to? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. No restrictions. You're invited. You feel burdened? Do you feel tired? Do you feel worn out? Is your soul sick with sin? Come to Jesus and experience rest. That is this bold, broad invitation. But then in chapter 12, we see what What we see is just true all through Jesus' ministry, and what I've seen is true in in, in my ministry and in, in life, just as I see it, is that this broad invitation for the gospel goes out, but then the reaction to it is mixed at best, and in most cases, it's pretty negative. Jesus says, come to me, everybody, but then what we see in chapter 12 is a bunch of examples of people that aren't really interested at all in coming to Jesus a lot of antagonism toward it. You see it in the first part of of Matthew 12. We're we're not going to read this exact verse, but Jesus and his disciples, they're walking through uh, grain fields on the Sabbath day. On the Sabbath, you weren't supposed to do any work. They're hungry. They walk through the grain fields. They pick some heads of grain. They have a snack. And the Pharisees, these religious leaders, are all over Jesus saying, well, you violated the Sabbath. You worked on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, guys, you, you missed the whole point of the Sabbath. Well, then they miss it even worse. As in verses 9 through 14, you see that Jesus heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. He's, again, on the Sabbath, he's in a synagogue. There's a man who is crippled, who has a withered hand, and Jesus heals him. Jesus restores him to life on God's day of rest. Right? Think about this. What did Jesus say? What was the offer of the gospel? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy burdened, I'll give you rest. I'll give you true rest. And Jesus gives this man a picture of his rest as he restores him to full health. And the Pharisees gripe about it. You violated the Sabbath. Forget the fact that you just healed a guy's hand. Well, you did it on the wrong day, Jesus. Come back Sunday, do it all you want there. Saturday, eh, off limits. You see, this is, these are not people who are coming to Jesus. These are people who are rejecting Jesus. You see then in verses 22 through 32, Jesus casts out a demon, a, a, a demon-oppressed man. He, he casts this demon out of him. And, and the Pharisees come and they say to him in verse 24, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Yeah, 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 Jesus, you're casting out demons, but that's because you're doing it in the power of Satan. That's not a very positive response to Jesus, Right? So this is is what's going on. And actually, I skipped over this, but in verse 14, you see how serious they are opposed to Jesus. Verse 14 of chapter 12, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So they're not happy that he's uh, having a snack on the Sabbath. They're not happy that he's healing someone on the Sabbath. They're they're accusing him of being a demon himself as he casts out demons. And then they come to him in uh, verse 38 and they say, Uh, Jesus, we'd like to see a sign from you. Jesus, could you do a sign that would show us that you're really a prophet? Right? And you're kind of going, like, "Uh, guys, um, remember the withered hand guy that you were pretty upset about? Like, remember him? Remember the demon guy that I healed, and, and then you, right? And so Jesus is like, no, I'm not giving you a sign. Here's the sign. Just like Jonah was three days in the belly of a fish, so the Son of Man is going to be three days in the ground, and then I'm going to rise. There's your sign. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Right? I mean, Jesus is getting frustrated, right? Before this, he said a tree is known by its fruit. Hey, you've got to watch this. The the good trees bear good fruit. The bad trees bear bad fruit. I'm coming. I'm offering this to whoever will have it. And the response is at best mixed, and many people going, nah, I don't want it. And, and at that point, Jesus' teaching changes. We get a clue about this in Matthew 13, verse 1. It says, That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. So what we're going to read about in Matthew 13 is taking place the same day as Jesus being accused of all these things. Okay? And so there's a level of frustration here in Jesus. And it changes the way he begins to, to teach and the way he begins to talk. Here's how a commentator and pastor, John MacArthur, describes this. He says this The Pharisees, epitomizing the nation's response to their Messiah, rejected their king and refused the kingdom he offered. It was a full and final renunciation. From that day on, the tenor of Jesus' ministry changed. Beginning that very day, He taught in parables, everyday stories that illustrated spiritual reality. Rather than openly proclaiming his message, that's what he did before, he thus obscured the truth from those who had rejected it already. Those who hungered to understand the genuine believers found him eager to explain every detail. Those who hated the truth did not bother to ask. This offer of salvation is generous and big. And people respond in different ways. Here's the question. Let's sort of take it off the Pharisees for a moment. Let's focus on you. How have you responded to Jesus? Jesus comes to you. He says, come to me. I'll give your soul rest. I'll do what you could never do. I'll do what religion and money and relationships and sex and food and anything else could never do. I will fill your weary heart. Come to me. Have you come to him? have you come? How have you responded to that? And what Jesus is going to do in, in Matthew 13, and, and actually, this is, there's some hard sayings in here. There's a little bit of an edge to this teaching that is sort of going to separate who's in and who's out. There's some exclusivity to this. There's a little bit of an edge. And Jesus is going to, in this particular parable, say, there are four ways that people respond to me. So the question I want you to think about is not for, your, not for your spouse, not for your kid, not for your parent, not for your aunt, not for your friend, for you. Which of these four responses do you have to Jesus' invitation for you to come? All right, so let's just look at the story. This is what we read uh, already. We read it, so I'll just kind of uh, paraphrase and, and sort of summarize the story. Jesus says there's a farmer. And the farmer is generously throwing seed everywhere, right? And you kind of get the idea, okay, the farmer is probably Jesus, just like he's been generous in offering this. The farmer is throwing seed everywhere. Some of the seed lands on a path. Uh, this would be kind of a hardened, beaten down, clay, dirt path, right? It's, 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 not a, it's not a paved road. It's not a sidewalk, but it would be kind of like a, a first century sidewalk. It would be a hard path. hard dirt path. Some of the seed lands there. The birds come in, Jesus says, they pick up the seed, they're off. The seed, nothing nothing ever happens with it. The next group, uh, the the next thing that happens is is Jesus, is the the farmer scatters uh, seed and it lands on rocky ground. Now, rocky ground is not what we might think of it. What we would think of it would be a bunch of soil with individual rocks in it. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. The rocky ground in Israel, especially at this time, would be kind of like this. There would be a thin layer of topsoil and then a thick layer of limestone or rock. And so this is not like soil with rocks in it. It's soil with a thick layer of rock beneath it. He says, here's what happens. Some of the the seed lands on that soil. And because because it can't go down into the rock, it springs up really quickly, and then it encounters the sun, and it gets scorched, and it withers away. Now, the third kind of seed Jesus talks about is seed that falls, in verse 7, among thorns. So this is seed that lands in dirt, and the soil of the dirt already has some, some kind of weeds, thorns, uh, kind of the beginnings of that in there. And so as it grows up, it also uh, grows, it says like uh, in verse 7, other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Right, so the path, the, the seed just gets taken away. The, the rocky ground, the seed is, grows up really fast and then it withers. The thorny ground, it grows up a little bit and then it's choked out. And then the last kind is good soil. Other seeds fell on good soil, verse 8, and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So get this. Jesus has made this huge offer of salvation. Come to me. He's been constantly rejected. He says, okay, let me tell you a story. This story very clearly illustrates what Jesus has been experiencing up to this point. And he begins to tell this story and then he tells the next story. And and the way it happened actually is you kind of, if you were to do a chronological thing of this, is Jesus sits down and he begins telling these stories. You get this flavor actually if you look at verse 34. Um, Here's what it says in verse 34. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. So here's how it happened. How it happened was Jesus sits down, tells this story, this story, this story, this story, this story. And then after all of that, he's privately with his disciples away from the crowd, and they go, hey, Jesus, could you explain this to us? And he begins to explain some of the parables and explain why he talks in parables and that sort of thing. So that's how it worked chronologically. Now, here's what's interesting. I find this interesting, and so track with me here, okay? That's how it happened chronologically. But Matthew, after he records the the story of the soils he kind of looks ahead and he grabs a scene that's coming in a little bit and he pulls it back into this story okay so it's like he gives you a preview of the like kind of imagine in a movie right you're watching something happen and then there's like a flash forward and then a flash back to the current reality that's what's going on matthew here is is giving you what happened later when they came and said, hey, Jesus, why do you speak in parables? Because that's what's next, right? In verse 10, it says, the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? So here's, here's the here's And again, you're like, I don't get it. Why are you excited? Okay, good question. This is interesting. Matthew could have just told it chronologically. But instead, he takes what's happening later and he inserts it here. Why? Why did he do that? Well, because it's so connected to this particular parable, right? Because what we have here is we have the parable, then we have the disciples asking, why do you talk in parables? And then we have the explanation of the parable. So Jesus' explanation of why he speaks in parables is also connected to our understanding of this parable, all right? Good. We're clear on that, maybe. All right, so, so they come. Jesus, why do you speak in parables? He says, verse 11, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For the one who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see. And hearing they do not hear. Nor do they understand. So, you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, guys, I've been plenty clear. I offered this broad offer of salvation to anyone who would come and everyone hears it but they don't really hear it. They see what I do. They don't really see it. If they did, it would change their life. But They don't. It says this fulfills Scripture in verse 14. Indeed, their ca- in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says you will indeed hear but never understand and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart Has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, he says to the disciples, for they see, and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Why parables? Jesus speaks in parables because, speak, because these parables reveal more light to the people who already have it and they conceal light to the people who have already rejected it. It's a little bit like, um, this is not exactly the, the right example, but it's kind of like this. It's kind of like there are times when there are things that Molly and I are talking about and uh, we don't necessarily want our kids to understand it. You ever have these moments? I don't know how you handle that. The way we handle it is um, we, talk, we see a lot of movies, so we'll go into, like, movie code. <laughs> hey, remember this movie when the person did that? That's what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, 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 I get it. And our kids hear that, but they don't get it, right? I know there, there's another uh, family in our church. He's, an, he's a police officer, and his wife used to be a police officer. And they speak to each other around their kids in, in police codes. <laughs> you know, like the numbers and stuff like that. And uh, eventually the kids you know, pick up on it. But it's that kind of idea. Jesus is saying, listen, I've been really clear. They didn't want it. So now I'm going to tell some stories that are going to give some real insight to those who are hungry to get it. And for those who aren't, they're just not going to understand it. That's why he speaks this way. But get this. The fact that some don't understand Jesus is not a negative reflection on Jesus. It's a negative reflection on them. Right? They are the ones, as it says in verse 15, whose heart is dull. They are the ones whose ears can barely hear. They are the ones whose eyes have closed. Right? This reminds me of Romans chapter 1, where it says this, "...for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth." Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's just the verse that explains this. It explains why many people can hear this generous offer of salvation, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and go, eh, I don't really want it. I'll take the created things, thanks. Yeah, there's been enough revealed to me that I know there's a God and I know I should honor him, but I'm not interested. And and whose fault is that? It's not God's fault. God's made himself clear. Jesus here made himself clear. I'm telling you, Jesus is making himself clear to you. How are you going to respond? Will your heart be alive and awakened or will it be dull? Will your ears be open or will they be closed? How will you respond? Well, then Jesus explains this parable in verse 18, and here's what he says. He says, "Here then the parable of the sower. And he's going to explain this, and essentially what you're going to see, look at verse 19. This tells us a, a few clues about uh, what these things represent in the story. In verse 19 it says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Okay? So we'll talk about what that particular verse means in a minute, but, but here's what you got to see. That verse clues us in to what some of the things in the story mean. Okay? So what is the seed of the story? What's the seed? Well, Jesus says here, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, that's the seed. What's the seed? It's the word of the kingdom. What's the word of the kingdom? The gospel, the good news. A king has come to initiate the restoration of all things. The king is here. That's the word of the kingdom, the gospel. Jesus has come to give you rest. That's the the seed. Well, what's the soil? It says, verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. So the seed is the gospel, the word of the kingdom. The soil is the heart. So what this parable is about is how... There are four different kinds of hearts that interact with the seed of the gospel, the word of the kingdom. So four different kinds of hearts. Jesus right there just explains the first kind is the unresponsive heart, right? This is the path. This is the the heart that is hard. It is stiff-necked. It is disinterested, right? Here's the word of the kingdom, doesn't understand it, gone the path here, and I think the imagery of the path is that this path is beaten down by the traffic of sin. Uncaring, uninterested, right? I had a a friend in, in college who I love dearly, and uh, he, he loved uh, ska music. Do any of you know ska music? And with him, it was like, hey, what are we going to listen to? Ska or ska? Like, I mean, that was it. Like, that was all, right? Well, there were some Christian ska bands at the time. God will use anything. And, uh, And there were some Christian ska bands, so I introduced my buddy to these bands. And he goes, yeah, they they play good music. I like them. And so we actually went once to a a concert of the Supertones. And uh, the Supertones, you know, they were rocking out. And then at some point they stopped and they started sharing the gospel. And my buddy was like, dude, shut up and play. I don't want to hear this. Just play music, right? And I would talk to him and I would say, hey, man, you know, where do you think you end up if you die today? You know, I, I don't know. I never thought about it. Okay, well, I'm giving you a chance to think about it right now. What do you think? I don't care. And it wasn't even in his case. He wasn't angry about it. He wasn't an atheist that, like, had some agenda to prove that there's no God. He just didn't care. His heart was just hard. It was unresponsive. And some people are like that when it comes to Jesus. Yeah, whatever. If it works for you, fine. But I, I don't need it. I don't care. Unresponsive heart. There's a second kind of heart. This is the heart described by the rocky ground. It's the superficial heart. Here's what it says in verse 20. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. It's the superficial heart. It's enthusiastic, but shallow. And remember the picture there is there was this hard rock underneath the layer and and foliage could grow, but fruit never came of it because it grew up and it got scorched by the sun. Well, what's the the sun scorching that Jesus had talked about earlier? It's the tribulation or persecution that comes because of the word. Now, there's a lot of people that end up in this place because they are offered the gospel with all these promises of how great life is going to be. And, and, and they're, they're not always reminded of the truth that says in the scripture that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, that suffering is part of the Christian life. And so these are people who hear the word, oh, Jesus has come to give me rest. Awesome, I'm in. Grow up really fast, receive it with joy, but then when life gets tough, they wither. They never bear fruit. I was leading a college ministry some years back with some friends, and we had a a young man in there that that was, uh, I mean, that's who I think of when I think of this, because he had seemed to have this really profound experience of Jesus and, and seemed to be kind of on fire and was reading a bunch and telling everyone about the Lord. And then within just a few weeks, his sister and his parents began to really persecute him and give him a hard time for his faith. And just as fast as he grew up, he withered. I'm not interested in Jesus anymore. I don't really care. I'm, I'm kind of past that. It's the superficial heart. Well, the third kind of heart we see in the, the, the thorny soil. And this is the worldly heart. Here's what it says in verse 22. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. It's the worldly heart. They hear this offer, oh yeah, I want Jesus, but I also want to hold on to my stuff. The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, it's too attractive. I, I want both. right? And Jesus said, this is a narrow gate. Right? You can't carry all your stuff with you. The, the story is told. I, I don't know that it's true, but it's kind of a good preacher story, so I'll tell it. But you can look it up on Snopes or something if you want. So the story is told that, that during the Crusades, uh, certain Crusader soldiers would be baptized with their swords out of the water. Or they would sort of hold it up. I, I'm not sure it's true because I think at that point in history they were being you know, sprinkled, not dunked. But, but I don't know. Either way, it makes an interesting point. These Crusader soldiers going, I'm, I'm in with Jesus, but not my sword. I'm in with Jesus, but I still intend to kill a lot of people. And I think that there are many people today who, in a sense, are baptized with their wallet in the air, baptized with their house in the air, or their car in the air, or their friends, or their boyfriend, or their girlfriend, or their children. God, I'm in. As long as I get my future, as long as I get my American dream, I'm in. It's a worldly heart. Jesus says one of the ways that people respond is they're like, yes, that's what I want, but I want all this too. It's a worldly heart. And as a result, as it says in the end of verse 22, it proves unfruitful. Here's the last kind of heart, is the receptive heart. It says in verse 23, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, in another 30. This is the one who hears it, understands it, and bears fruit. Now fruit is constantly used in the scripture as a description of the outcome of your life, the way you live, the obedience that you demonstrate in your life. It, it's always described that way. And that's what Jesus was talking about earlier in chapter 12. He says a tree is known by its fruit. You can tell what kind of uh, teaching these Pharisees really have because of the outcome of their life. And it's, it's mean, and it's mean-spirited, and it's nitpicky, and it's self-righteous. You, you can tell. It's, it's the outcome of their life. That's the fruit. Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. The the work that the Spirit does in the lives of Christians is that He bears fruit. Your life changed. Obedience begins to happen. And that obedience described in Galatians 5 is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Those things begin to grow together. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the result of a truly changed heart. Get this, it's not the obedience that changes the heart, it's the changed heart that brings obedience. And what Jesus is saying in this parable is that kingdom people bear fruit. Therefore, if you're not bearing fruit, Jesus is warning, you're not in the kingdom. There's a bunch of questions I ask anytime I'm preparing a sermon, about 15 questions that kind of lead me through the text and lead me trying to apply it and kind of prepare my sermon. And one of the questions I always ask is, uh, what, does the, what does this text want people to know, feel, or do? I always ask that because I'm always trying to think, okay, what, this, this text is calling us to respond in some way. There's some things we need to know. There's some things we need to feel. There's some things we need to do. And I don't always apply it in every sermon to all those three things, but, but in this case, I want to. So I want to kind of look at this and go, what do we do with this? How do we apply this? What is this passage? What does this story want us to know, feel, or do? So the first thing, what are we supposed to know from this? First, we are to accept the reality that only those who bear fruit are truly Christians. That's the point of the story. I mean, think about it. You go, the, 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 the seed on the path is just gone. But, but what about the seed in the rocky ground and the seed in the thorny soil that, that seemed to grow up? It seemed to, something seemed to happen. It received the word with joy. But only one bore fruit. Only one demonstrated that the heart had actually been changed in a lasting way. Right? John MacArthur says this, fruit, not foliage, is the mark of true salvation. Right? So, so get this. It's not just Christian activity. There are a lot of people engaged in Christian activities. There are a lot of people who come to church, who volunteer, who, uh, you know, might serve in kids, right? And there are a lot of people who might do all kinds of things. In the name of Jesus, I'm going to do all that. But the question is, is the heart been changed? Is it leading to the fruit of love and joy and peace and all of those things? Only true Christians bear fruit. If you're not bearing fruit, here's the hard word. You don't have assurance that you're a Christian. And, and and the reason I said accept this reality is because this is a hard reality to accept, right? We we want to. I'll hear stories like this quite a bit of uh, someone will say, well, you know what, my my uh, son when he was uh, nine years old, he made a commitment to Christ and he walked forward and he got baptized. And oh, great. Well, what what happened from there? Well, you know, his path was a little bit rocky, and you know he. Um, he got into drugs and he drank a lot and he got arrested and oh okay well what's he doing now well he's in prison now and um, you know was he part of the, the you know chapel or things that go on there well no not really you know he's but he's a Christian I'm praying for him he's a Christian R- really on what basis go oh, oh, oh well once saved always saved. He made a decision, once saved, always saved. Listen, I totally believe once saved, always saved. The question is, how do you know if you were really saved? Because your heart was changed, and it eventually bore fruit. It doesn't mean you ended up perfect, right? Another scenario that happens quite a bit is people who look good on the outside, but the heart never really grows in love with Christ or love for people. This is often people who know a lot, and they can kind of beat you at Bible trivia, they don't love anybody. They don't serve anyone. Now listen, you're never more like Jesus than when you give and when you serve. You can know all the stuff and you can win all the trivia contests. But if your heart's not changed, you're not a Christian. We got to accept that. That's true. That's according to Jesus. The only one that that ends up in the kingdom, is the one that bears fruit. Now get this, the fruit is sometimes different, right? Some 30, some 60, some 100. Sometimes what we do is we go, well, we look at the the godliest, most super Christian person we know. We go, well, if I'm not like that, I'm not bearing fruit. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says sometimes there's a little, sometimes there's a lot, but with true Christians, there's always fruit. got to accept that reality. Second thing we need to do is we need to feel something. We need to feel brokenhearted that so many reject Jesus should break our hearts that so many people are on that, the, the path where they just aren't interested. It should break our hearts that so many people want Jesus but aren't willing to love and trust him all the way, even if it will cost them their comfort and their money and their goods and their relationships and all those other things. It should break our hearts. It shouldn't cause us to well up in pride and go, "Who? look at me. I'm the good soil. I was talking with a, a guy who farms. He, he, he um, He spends part of the year here and and part of the year in the Midwest, and he's a farmer. He says, hey, i got to tell you guys a little bit, because you city folk don't always understand this. By the way, being called city folk is awesome. Like, I'd love to call someone city folk, but I am city folk. So what he said is, he goes, listen, soil, good soil is always good because it's been prepared. And so Christians shouldn't feel like, oh, I'm the good soil. If you're good soil, it's because God's prepared you. God, use the circumstances of your life, or God, use the painful experience, or God, use someone in your life that, to, to, to make the, your heart receptive to the gospel. So we should feel broken-hearted, grieved that so many reject Jesus. It should lead us to pursue them. It should lead us to welcome them, to, to embrace Christ. And then here's the last thing we need to do, is we need to examine ourselves. Examine yourself. The scripture says. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourself. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Jesus has come to you. He's offered himself. How have you responded? Are you, eh, whatever? Are you you with him as long as he protects your comfort and all the other idols that you really hold dear? Or are you saying, Jesus, I surrender all? Where are you in that? Listen, you may make that assessment. And, and I hope and I trust there are many of you who will come to the, to the place of going, I'm in Christ. I'm really a Christian. I really love Him. The, the fruit is happening. It's not as fast as I'd want. It's not as ripe as I'd want. It's not as big as I'd want. But man, God's working. Praise God for that. Or this message is not designed to just sort of discourage everybody. There are many of you who should leave this encouraged, going, God's been been working. His spirit is in me and it's bearing fruit. And you should lead yourself to to pray, to thank God, to cry out in enjoyment. We're going to have in just a moment an opportunity for you to take communion and to sing. And you should do that joyfully, celebrating the work that God's done in your life. But maybe you would look at it and you'd go, you know what? I think I'm in one of these three categories or I'm just not Sure. And if that's you, then, then there's two things I want to tell you. The first is, you need to pray too. And you need to ask God to churn the soil of your heart. To break up the rocks, to remove the thorns, and to make your heart good soil that would receive him with faith. And then here's the second thing. You need to respond to what Jesus said back in 11, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, when he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you're not sure, if you're going, I don't know, come to him. Trust him. Put your hope in him. And if God is working in such a way that you want to do that, that's an indication that he's made your heart good soil. And then keep trusting him and see by his power the kind of fruit and the kind of life that changes as a result. These are some hard sayings. The rest of these parables we're going to look at are going to be some hard sayings. We're going to have to examine some stuff. But, oh, he who has ears, let him hear. There's rich things if we'll explore them. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you are always faithful. And God, you love us enough to, in moments like this, give us hard truths and things to consider. God, I pray that we would be like these disciples who eagerly asked what these things meant and who wanted to live differently as a result. God, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to respond now. Um, If you're new.